Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Next week's talk is Investments, Pensions, and Retirement. What are the issues? The speaker is Sean Pass. Okay, I hope you have your questions already. And uh, let's welcome back Kelsey Pedro. We request that you come to the microphone because we are recording this. And in order to get the questions, we like you at the microphone. Only ask a question with one or two topics, and please keep them brief. Thank you. So, could you come to the microphone to ask your question? And please state your name. The last gentleman's comment was, um, can we use motor oil? The answer is no. Um, motor oil, it, it, from use perspective, uh, is a concern environmentally as it is a, largely a waste product, but uh, our process is not able to turn that material into biodiesel at all. Um, plus, we kind of shy away from that. It's already a petroleum product. Um, we don't want to blend in the natural portions that we have with something that's petroleum-based, so we don't, we don't do that. Sorry, sorry. My name is Knut Peterson. Uh, thanks for coming, Kelsey. That was awesome. Uh, my question was related to uh, you driving up the cost of food. But uh, I mean, my my personal opinion, of course, is that since we waste about forty percent of the food we purchase, it's still a big really issue. But uh, to answer the question about costing up costing up food. Certainly. From a biodiesel perspective, it's, it's an easy uh, question to answer. We generally don't drive up food at all, and that's easily demonstrated now. If you look at the price of canola, again, if you're involved in the agricultural industry, you see that canola prices, well, canola prices low. And the reason why is because the production level is very high. And the reason why the production level is very high is because the canola producers are anticipating biodiesel being part of that mix. So it actually, in the Canadian context, uh, the effect has been negative on the, on the price of, of the canola oil itself. That being said, that's based on the production levels we have today with the other plants that we have at 330 million liter capacity in Western Canada. The bigger question on the biodiesel side is what happens if the government moves to a much higher concentration, from 2% to 5% and 10%? Well, guess what? You are going to run into an issue that you are going to see competitive pricing occurring with canola that is also used as a food product. So that's why our company is addressing the issue, looking directly at alternative crops, looking at the algae to completely move away from that question and look at uh, crops that be grown on, grown on on marginal lands, lands that uh, don't capacitate crops at this point. So we can actually look at that through some of the crops that we are looking at, particularly one called Carinata. It's also known as uh, Egyptian, uh, pardon, Egyptian, Ethiopian mustard that grows on very dry lands and in, in uh, very poor soils. So there are ways for us to get around that. If I continue that a little bit and look at the really big issue is, is with, eth uh, with ethanol production, which is largely corn-based in the United States. Um, they use the corn uh, to produce the, the ethanol, 
And there's been a lot of complaints that drives up corn prices, which in, in effect in Mexico drives up one of their staple diets is tortillas made from corn. And what's the effect there? Interestingly, if you look at the equation, again, the UN did a study and they, they saw that the, the prices actually were not affected by the present level of biofuels. And I will say again, the present level of biofuels, that there wasn't an effect. So you can read that. That's one of the pieces of literature. The other interesting piece of information is when the ethanol industry started to evolve um, and there was more corn production, a lot of the farmland that started to be used was not in use previously in the United States. So that land was sitting idle. And those farmers had no reason to put in more corn because their corn was subsidized by the United States. And now with the ethanol coming in, um, they can produce more because there's demand for that product and it's actually accelerated the production of corn by quite a bit and helped out the farmer's basis and the prices are actually very stable. That's a very interesting effect that has happened from an ethanol perspective. But I'm not the ethanol expert, so I guess in a roundabout equation what I'm telling you is that right now there's not an effect. In the future, we have to keep an eye on this. It will correct itself one way or another through our industries, and there will be some effect. But our company's drive is to reduce that effect by looking at alternative crops that completely abate the idea behind using food. Uh, my name is Van Christou. Um, I know very little about the technology behind uh, this, this whole operation of yours, but it sounds to me like it's a very complex one uh, technologically. And uh, I'm wondering how much of that technology is in-house produced and how much of it is bought from outside resources. Can you give us some idea of that balance? Sure. I'm smiling because, you know, after being in this industry for 10 years and, and being through the technology process, wow, what an education. Um, biodiesel itself is actually not new. Uh, it was used extensively in World War II uh, when they started running low on certain fuel reserves. Um, certain countries were actually producing biodiesel to run their diesel vehicles. It was first produced by Rudolf Diesel, who invented the diesel engine way back in the 1900s. So this is not a new product per se. That being said, we're talking about crude biodiesel back then. This is a refined portion, and the standards for biofuels are very specific. So the actual production of biodiesel, very simple. Getting it up to standards, quite complex. So the vast majority of our technology was designed to do that. And as far as difference between in-house and out, um, house, that's not a bad. Um, we generally took a lot of material. Uh, we took a lot of technology that pre-existed and built a better mousetrap, if that's the best way to put it. So we looked at technologies that did exist, but were never put together in the same pattern. And we, that's how our process is unique, is that this has never been done in, the, in this process before. And we selected the most environmentally friendly aspects. For example, a lot of biodiesel companies will do what's called a water wash and they have to use about two-thirds of the volume of water in order to wash their biodiesel. That means they would have had 44 million liters of water waste a year. Now, I wouldn't have been able to stand up in front of you and said that we, you know, we did it the best we could environmentally if we'd have gone that route. And we didn't. We ended up spending more capital expenditures to make sure that we weren't using any of that water. Our process doesn't use any water at all besides for heating and cooling of the materials. So, again, it came down to best practices, uh, economic feasibility and capital costs. And unfortunately for my shareholders, I always vary towards the higher capital costs in order for the environmental impact, and I got some abuse from that, I'll say. But at the end of the day, you see the reasoning behind it, because now I look at them and show them, well, here's your carbon values. Because we spent more money, our carbon costs are less. And therefore, we're getting more money when we sell our carbon credits. And they went, oh, now I get it. So always in the reasoning to my madness, even if I am great. 
Great, thank you very much. My name is Joseph Nutuk, and uh, you tweeted something when you said uh, idle land, and to me that's very concerning because I'm sure the land will be used for something, perhaps the ecosystem as a whole, wildlife resources, natural resources that are not directly related to making money for whomever. <coughs> so I think you've got to be careful to make that observation because that land has been used for something in the past. And wherever it might be, I've been fighting this all my careers. So this land is useless. It's not being used for your specific use. Well, it's being used for the so just keep that in mind when you make an observation. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just saying it doesn't sound very good. And the other thing is, uh, you know, I, I'm looking at uh, costs of production. What, you're, what are the, the economic costs or producing equipment that you're making and so on and so forth to do what you're doing? That's something I don't. I've never. I don't think I've seen any equation at this point. Thank you. Yeah. My pleasure, and I appreciate the comment about land use. That is a good comment. And, and for an example, my grandfather at one point um, made sure that during the entire time in southern Saskatchewan, where uh, my mother grew up and where he grew up, uh, there was one particular portion of land that he, at, at his passing, made sure that was preserved. That was uh, natural wildlife, and, and you know, from my perspective. Certainly being a, a person who enjoys uh, Mother Nature in the sense that I do, I don't want to see a lot of our land uses in the mountains go to forestation or, or any of those, or those aspects. Those need to be preserved for our children. That being said, there, there are some lands that are out there, especially when I look at the algae basis. I'm looking at some of the craters that we developed in northern Alberta that could be used just on land basis. Because right now, if you look at some of those pictures, they're nothing. They're abatement of any sort of, of, of natural resource now. Um, and certainly looking at some of the alternative crops uh, I, I far from suggest that we would be looking at breaking into brand new land capacities. Um, there may be some aspect of that, but uh, certainly we want to be careful of that, and that needs to be measured out. It needs to be responsive to uh, the community to make sure that we're not going to be using something that is wants to be preserved or avoiding in that capacity. So we have to watch that, certainly. Um, second comment on, on uh, costs. Uh, I can't get into too many details. It's all proprietary in that aspect. But what I can say is, um, we spent a lot of time, again, ensuring that our capital costs would be lean. Uh, we are a production company. It's in our best interest to make sure that we're as lean as possible. But biodiesel is slightly more expensive to produce and, and to sell than diesel fuel. Uh, that being said, when you're blending at 2%, the effect on the pump, if you've noticed any effects, there's, again, studies done, there is no effect on the basis of biodiesel inclusion at 2%. If you start to see it at higher volumes, there may be, under, again, present structure, where we're at. But if we look at the future and we start to get systems like this algae growing where it, the cost of the oil to buy is less, that's where you're going to see an effect in potential savings. Right now it's not. If I buy a liter of algae, I'm spending $1.50 a liter just to buy the, the algae oil. And I turn that into biodiesel and by the time I'm done, it's going to be very high by comparison to diesel fuel. So it doesn't work yet on an economic basis. On canola, I'm very close, I will say that, to the present price of diesel fuel, which is actually $1.33 at the pump. Um, and I know that because I drive a diesel vehicle myself. Obviously, I gotta, you know, I've got to practice what I preach. And yes, it is running on biodiesel. But um, so what we're trying to drive at is that is, is that, that equation getting to uh, economies of scale where we're going to be able to match, if not better, uh, petroleum basis. But we've got a long way to go. I've showed you the values of how much uh, uh, fuels produced out there and what kind of volumes we have to compete with. We're not at that level. And when we start to get to higher and higher volume productions, the price will come. Hello, Kelsey. I'm Mary Shelton. Welcome here, and thank you for an interesting presentation. Since you're such an environmentalist, I have one little announcement to make, which is strange for a 
and here to make about a liberal. But anyway, Dr. Swan is coming <laughs> is coming on Monday to the lodge to speak about the medical effects of drilling that could be happening on the west side. Anyway, so that's my little piece. Uh, I'm curious, uh, these practicalities, uh, Neil Young claimed that he traveled in his electric car using biofuel to go up to Fort McMurray. Now, I've been that road many times. Uh, I don't know where he would buy biofuel on that. And how would he have practically done that? If I wanted to buy a vehicle that used biofuel, where would I get it? Okay. Um, the good news is, and that's a really good story, and I'll have a Neil Young story, too. Um, the, the biofuels is readily available to pumps at the percentage we're talking about. So if you drive up to a pump right now, uh, Shell, Petrocanada, Suncor, um, Husky, they all have that in their blends. So you'll get that in that 2 to 5% blending ratio. It'll be in small volumes. They don't even need to tell you. It's just, it's just in the fuel because they know there's no effect on your engine. It's all good. And that's measured and tried and tested and true. If you wanted more than that, um, Kill to Kills does have a blending facility on site. We foresaw that, that some people would want higher than 5% blending rates, such as municipalities. The city of Calgary runs some of its fleet on 10%, and the summer, some of its fleet on 20%. So we have the ability to sell that product to these specific folks if they still want it. So one of the few places you can get larger blends of biodiesel is from Kyoto. But again, we're an industrial scale facility. We don't have a pump out there and we don't want people driving all over the site because it'd be really dangerous with large trucks driving around and stuff like that. So we don't have a pump ourselves and it's not really economic for us to do that. But we can on larger aspects or you know, large forming organizations that want large fuels of 150,000 liters, we can sell higher blends, even up to 100% if, if they want. Um, so that's very specific, and a lot, of, a lot of companies are willing to do that, but we are. So, because we, we also see the aspect of this is not just bottom line, it's environmentalism getting the message out. Oh, I'm sorry, I had a Neil Young comment. I'm sorry, I just got to interrupt that. I've actually seen that car. Uh, it was presented to Neil Young at the 2000, I think 2009 National Body Sport Conference in the United States, and it's quite a rocket machine, and it's, it's I don't know about it being, I didn't realize it was all electric, but it runs on biodiesel. Uh, he would have had to bring us home. Because as I mentioned, he could fill up an Alberta with you getting to the 5% blends wherever he goes, so you have to turn his own around because there's no other place in Alberta that will supply in that nature. He certainly didn't get me a call. Um, I'm Trevor Page, and I was interested to hear what you said that plastic uh, can be made from biodiesel or non petroleum products. And I wonder if you could give us an idea of some products that are currently made out of plastic that could be made out of biodiesel with some comparative costs. Is it, is it, I mean, the bottom line of the question is, is it that much more expensive? But some examples, if you could give them. Thank you. That's a really good question. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to talk a lot about the economics, but a few places you can look is, is again, in paint stores, you look for low VOC or all-natural paints. Those materials are made from non-petroleum-based products, and those have basically plasticized materials in them. And to make plastics is, is this big mystery to a lot of people, but it's actually quite a simple process. It's called polymerization. So you take a, a basically a, a one chemical molecule, and you multiply it out. And when you get to that point, it turns into a plastic when you get to a certain chain level. Now, uh, places, if you look very carefully, and I know I've seen it in Safeway, and, and you see the package when you buy your... Your fresh spices, if you go buy some sage or something like that, some of the packages have a corn husk on it. That means that that package, that plastic package, was made from corn. So it's 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 a biologically clear PVC, or whatever you want to call it, PVC, but PE, I think, 
plastic that was made from natural materials. So that's two examples. Uh, another one is, say, with glycerin, our byproduct, you can actually polymerize that, and it turns into a, like a rubber substance. Um, I've done it with my son, and basically made a little rubber ball that you can make, and you know, it, you bounce off the floor and stuff like that. And, and again, it's through polymerization of the chains of the, of the glycerin. So there's lots of examples. It's, it's basically what I'd like to drive to is almost any plastic that you can make from a petroleum source, you can also make from a natural source. Some of them are sugar-based, such as corn. Some of them are oil-based, such as biodiesel, or even just straight vegetable oils themselves. And it's all based on the same chemistry. The difference is primarily the cost. It's going to be more expensive now because the, the oil is from a natural product is more expensive, and the plants that make these natural products are pure. But as consumers, we can make that choice, pay a little extra. We're not talking about dramatic extra costs, but smaller extra costs to paint our houses with more environmentally friendly materials, buy these plastics that are more environmentally friendly, and or even avoid plastics. I know there's a drive here in, in southern Alberta and Lethbridge to not have any bags at stores anymore. I think that's great. I think that's awesome because you don't need bags. You can buy your own that last forever. I mean, my family being environmentalist it is, you go in one cupboard, you open up, and there's 19 of these damn things. And, you know, we never have to use a plastic bag again. But um, we can actually make plastic bags again from biological materials, which will break down in a couple of years as well. That's another alternative. But I'd recommend the other, not using them at all. But certainly plastic packaging, the, the take-home message there is any product can be made from it. Terry. Terry Jellington. Thank you, Kelsey. Appreciate your presentation and the energy with which you bring it. Uh, a twofold question. One is, I uh, I hear you speaking about biodiesel. Uh, is the mix of biofuel with ordinary gasoline not realistic? Uh, that's one question. Uh, secondly, uh, why the two percent? Would you favor five percent? And is there a limit to the percentage of biofuel that most of our cars can operate on efficiently? Good question. Um, when it comes to mixing biodiesel with gasoline, that doesn't work. Um, it, the reason why is because the engines are designed to run on specific types of chemicals that you buy. For example, when you hear the word high octane rating, does anybody really know what octane means? It means C8. That's eight carbon chains long. That's the most ideal chemical for your gasoline engine to run on. But you can use ethanol into that gasoline. That mix is fine. So in the ethanol industry, they're aimed at the gasoline industry. The biodiesel industry is aimed at the diesel industry. We produce a, a similar type of a chemical called a cetane, which is like an octane number only it increases the torque on the diesel fuel, and the biodiesel has a higher torque ratio than the diesel fuel does. It's one of its advantages. So we can't put it into gasoline, but we can put ethanol. So in the long term, looking at, uh, like, say, companies that produce ethanol from cellulose, I think there's a lot of aspect there, a lot of movement there that could be done, and it is quite practical to be done. And right now, there is an ethanol blend in the province as well. So up to 5% of your gasoline is ethanol, whether you do that or not. When it comes to limitations on cars, um, most cars are limited to about 10% ethanol total blend, and past that, the, the heat of the reaction that occurs in your engine is too hot for most engines. Unless you have what's called a flex fuel vehicle, and you can use up to, I think it's 75 or even higher, 85. I think it's E85 that you can use in, in a flex fuel vehicle, 85% ethanol. But, but finding that's very difficult. I do know that the research station here in town uh, took upon themselves to buy an E85, E85 tank, and they do use E85 ethanol, pardon me, but it's one of the few places that does so. On the biodiesel side of things, there is no limitation from a practicality perspective to use up to 100% biodiesel. I've done it in my car. Don't tell them that, Volkswagen, because there is actually a warranty basis of up to 20% in most engines. So all engine manufacturers say, yeah, you can use up to 20%. Some of them 100, such as John Deere says you can go right ahead and use 100. The difficulty is sourcing that we've already talked about. That's hard to find. 
And the second is when we come down to total production volume. I am in favor of seeing an increase from 2 to 5%. Now that we've got our 2% underneath us, we really need to see that, that production and volume come to, to light first. Now we can look at expansions and increasing volumes. But when we get to that 5 to 10, we're going to have to have a very serious national discussion on what we're making this stuff out. Because if I'm still making it out of canola at 5%, and I expand Kyofuel's operation from 66 million liters to 250 million liters, and ADM does the same thing, expands theirs up to a billion, we're going to start to run into issues. And we are going to have a serious conversation that you said, you can say, Kelsey, you remember that 2000, January 14, you said there was no effect on food? Well, now what? So that's, again, why my company is saying, you know what? We do believe we're going to move to 5%, eventually higher. We've got to get on the feedstock issue and start correcting that because it's going to become an issue. So practicality, no. In the feedstock, there's the barrier. Hi, Kelsey. Uh, Arden Shibley. Um, I was curious what the energy consumption uh, of your facility is like. Uh, how does it compare to other like large production facilities, like, I don't know, Frito-Lay or something? Um, and also, how does that compare to the uh, energy usage for production of regular uh, diesel and gasoline up like uh, northern Alberta? Right. Really good questions. Um, first off, as far as energy consumption, we focused again on trying to maximize the amount of fuel we, we created by comparison to the amount of energy we created. One of the classic examples we have of that is is we have an in-floor heating process in our building with uh, two generators, and these folks who have seen the facility can attest to this. The, these um, generators use uh, are about 98% efficient. And when I compare my gas bill for my you know 12,000 square foot facility, that's about $800 per month to a typical, which is about $4,000 per month. We definitely have focused a lot on trying to reduce the amount of energy that we use for, for basis. I can't compare it with another company. I don't necessarily have the numbers, but I do know that we we are very efficient. You know, and when people look at our gas bill electrical bill, they always look twice, and we've even been audited. Say, well, how is that so low? And we say, well, come on in. And they say, well, your natural gas should be huge because you're running this 500-horsepower boiler. Yeah, but there's an economizer on it that preheats the water. Oh, yeah, oh. <laughs> so we spent a lot of time to make sure that was low. Now, the more important, I think, driving question is, does biodiesel produce energy or lose it? Really? Because <laughs> at the end of the day, when you want to make a fuel, how much energy are you producing or using to make that fuel? So... For the example of, of, say, I hate to do this, but pick a little bit on the ethanol industry as an alternative. When you make um, an energy comparison, if you take a liter of gasoline to produce a liter of ethanol, both the best facilities out there right now, the, the corn facilities, will produce about 1.25 liters of, of ethanol for whatever one liter of energy they use. So they'll produce a benefit, but it's small. It's a percentage basis. If you look at Canola-style plants such as, as such as Kyo Fuels, for every liter of diesel fuel energy we use, we produce six liters of biodiesel on the way out. And the reason behind that is, is not an attempt to beat up in any other industry. In the ethanol industry, you need to ferment your product, so you have to keep all the tanks at 37 degrees Celsius. You need to then distill it, because you need to distill the alcohols up to a very high percentage. Um, biodiesel doesn't do that. It's a chemical process. So we can keep the temperatures low. Our maximum temperature on our process is 80 degrees Celsius, which is very low. And the maximum pressure is 15 pounds per square inch, so very safe. So on that aspect, we get away, I guess we want to put that with uh, being highly environmentally friendly from an energy perspective as well. Hi, um, I read that industrial hemp was Sal Allen, and I read that industrial hemp was one of the best uh, products for biofuel. Um, I just wondered uh, if you would consider that. Yeah, I think it's um, it is part of our radar for sure. Is is hemp is used as, as you know for 
Um, certain types of products that we won't mention in this, in this room, but certainly from an environmental perspective, it's got a lot of, of good, good lakes. I mean, uh, my family went down to Costa Rica for, their, for winter vacation this year. Lovely place, by the way. What did we find down in one of the shops in one of the local villages? Hemp clothing being sold. Way down there. They don't grow it down there. They import it from places like Canada that's growing it, and they make their hemp shirts and sell it there. Really? That's amazing. So, you know, hemp clothing, if you have your own appearance, it's fantastic clothing, and it's more environmentally friendly and produces less energy than, than cotton by a long shot. So that's yet another alternative for us to utilize is this hemp. Now, it produces oil, but not in a large uh, concentration. So we really have to see a lot more hemp grown before we can, can utilize that as an oil. So it's really about volume. And other than that, it makes great bodies. Hemp bodies looks fantastic. As far as its uh, its qualities, it, it's, it would be a great alternative for us to look at. It's just not producing enough quantity. Thanks, Kelsey. My name is Jim Moyer. I was just wondering about, you're talking about the cost of your factory. Are you taking into account the cost of growing the crop, the energy to produce nitrogen to grow the crop? Is that all taken in, and what? how does that measure up versus the cost of running your factory? And the other thing is, if in the States, they probably use soybean, which is a nitrogen-fixing crop. Is that more efficient? Really good questions. Um, cost of the entire plant, as far as capital, yes, that's all in, $40 million, including the engineering, the research, the, the capital cost, every bit of the 7,000 linear feet of pipe and 8,000 linear feet of electrical cable. Don't ask me why I know that, but um, the the uh, the also the cost of production is it is all factored in. So when we buy, we buy oil. We don't have we don't buy seed. We don't have a crushing facility out there. We thought about putting that in, but that was another twenty five million dollars that I just didn't have. So we actually buy the oil. So all that cost is factored in. So when we buy our product, all that's prearranged, and our next step is to take that oil, put our costs associated with that, and our chemicals that we purchase are. Our, our, all our inputs, such as our labor basis, all, all our transportation, all the rest of that stuff labeled in there, that's all accounted for, obviously, when we sell that fuel off, and then you know, our margin is placed above that. So that is all factored in on the, on the end of the day. Um, the, the soybean is a really interesting question. It is a nitrogen fixator, but it, it produces less oil than canola. So it, that's one of the reasons why it's stressed out to, to be utilized with us, is because it's, it produces um, quite a bit less oil. That being said, they do get a benefit when they measure out the whole carbon chain, look at that as being part of the process. So they get a bump. Um, but when you look at the, 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 the complete analysis, because there's so much more oil produced per hectare for canola than there is for soy, so canola wins out as far as producing more energy per, per hectare and certainly more energy per liter. So, uh, But what we'd still like to see is you know, any sort of recommendations. We don't want to see people popping in canola every year. They still have to rotate and do the same sort of croppings that they have every year. That's not suggesting any change there. Because you got to keep your you got to keep your soil in your land. That's I think even Teddy Roosevelt said that a nation that destroys itself it destroys the soil first. This will be the last question. Yeah. Um, Kelsey, you Thank you. I learned a lot. Carol Beswick. Uh, I have a question I wonder if you could talk about the rate of deforestation in the Amazon and how it's related to increased production for uh, biofuels and ethanol there. It's mm -hmm. a really good question. Um, certainly that's a great concern and it's, it doesn't even need to be addressed by my company. It's addressed both nationally and federally. And how we do that is um, the government put in a minimum greenhouse gas reduction level. They said that the greenhouse gas has to be X lower 
or you can't use that fuel in the province. And what that did is it effectively suggested that if you're going to tear down a forest, we're going to factor that in how much carbon has gone into this. And that's a huge negative. As soon as you start tearing down forests, they say, well, the carbon, you just destroyed a carbon sink. Because that's where all the carbon was going in the first place. Now you tear that out, uh-uh. your fuel can't arrive here. So if any fuels show up in the provinces of Alberta or in the Canada in general that have been produced from lands that have been destroyed um, through deforestation, it is not allowed. Which is great because from a, a very selfish regional perspective, that also means that international competition gets significantly reduced. Because it's less costly to produce um, uh, palm oil than it is to produce canola oil. So somebody would get a better benefit if they were to produce canola or produce palm oil potentially imported in Canada. That's not allowed. So you will not find imported biofuels maybe from the United States, yes, because they're using soybean and canola, which is not taking away from the forest, but you will not find that here. So from that perspective, it's stopped in our region. That doesn't mean that it's, it's not going on in those other regions. And it is a concern from a community perspective, and certainly from a biodiesel perspective. When I sit on the Western Canadian Biodiesel Association, we certainly have a statement towards that that is counterintuitive. You don't want to be tearing down forests in order to make biofuels. What is the point in sense of that? So, especially if you've ever been to some of those jungles and seen it for yourself, it's a beautiful thing to see and uh, certainly is part of this natural resource that we have and is one of the biggest carbon sinks that we have, second only to the oceans themselves. So we've got to protect them. So, thank you very much.